Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. For our first episode, we're going on a deep dive into Scotland's knitting history with the team behind the Fleece to Fashion Project. From spinning alpaca yarn in the borders and exporting cashmere twin sets to Hollywood, to uncovering the women behind Scotland's knitted textile industry, and even finding symphonies in hand-knitting patterns for home knitters, you don't need to know the difference between a knit and a purl stitch to enjoy this episode. But the Fleece to Fashion team may just yet inspire you to pick up your needles and cast on. I'm Lynn Abrams. I'm Professor of Modern History in Humanities at University of Glasgow and I'm a social and cultural historian and oral historian and I'm the leader of the Fleece to Fashion project. Hello, I'm Sally Tuckett and I'm Senior Lecturer in Dress and Textile Histories at the University of Glasgow. I'm one of the co-investigators on the project and I'm particularly interested in the early history of knitting in Scotland, particularly the 18th century, and how it fits and diverts from other textile heritages in Scotland. I'm Rosalind Chapman. I'm a researcher on the project love researching knitting so I'm delighted to be on it. My name is Lynn Gardner, I'm a researcher on the project and I have an interest in sort of textiles, technology and that sort of transference of skill. Can you tell me a little bit about the story behind Fleece to Fashion? The Fleece to Fashion project grew out of a series of events mainly funded by the Royal Society of Edinburgh who very kindly provided us with the money to run a workshop on knitted textiles in Scotland and then we established a network on Scottish knitted textiles which was called Knitting in the Round and we brought together people involved in the knitwear sector across Scotland, both from the point of view of raw materials. So we had someone talking about sheep. We had people who were involved in spinning and sorting wool. And also we had people from the kind of design and production end of of the sector. Added to that, myself and our co-investigator, Marina Moskowitz, who at that point was at Glasgow, but now is at the University of Wisconsin, We were both very keen knitters and were always wondering whether we could get a great big funded project that really aligned with one of our hobbies. So that's really kind of what underpinned it. And then we applied for a great big AHRC grant um, to allow us to do all the things that we wanted to do. So to allow us to do the basic research, you know, archival and oral history research on the history of knitting in, in the Scottish context but also to carry out lots of impact activities with knitters and designers and and so on. So the project really, Fleece to Fashion, is, is a combination of those two things. It's undertaking really basic research into the history of, of the sector, but it's also communicating with people out there, whether they be amateur knitters or whether they be involved in the more commercial commercial side of of knitwear in Scotland. For our listeners who have yet to pick up their knitting needles and perhaps aren't familiar with the textiles industry here in Scotland, can you maybe start by giving us a couple of definitions? What is it that is meant by knitting and knitted textiles where the Police to Fashion project is concerned? 
Definitions of knitting and knitted textiles and knitwear. Oh, it's a really difficult question to ask. <laughs> um, so knitting is both the process of making a fabric, right? And it also, at the same time, makes a garment. So you've got the two things going on at once. So it's quite distinctive in, in the broad scheme of things. If you're looking at textiles in general, knitting is quite different. We're interested in all elements of the process. So we are interested in the production of the yarn. So really from the fleece to the the yarn, which then goes to make up the knitwear. But we're also interested in the other end, if you like. We're interested in the design of garments, you know, what's done with that yarn and how that knitwear is produced, whether it's you know, let's say by someone at home on a pair of knitting needles or at the other end of the scale, whether it's a large automated factory producing very high quality luxury knitwear on automated computerised knitting machines. So there's lots and lots of different elements to the project. And I think that's one of the things that we really want to investigate is the connections between all of these, between the person who's knitting at home by hand who might be knitting at home by hand for him or herself, but also might be also doing home hand knitting on behalf of one of the big companies as well. And we're also interested in all the stages in between that. So knitting is a kind of very diverse area of inquiry, I think often is seen as a sort of stereotypical you know people just knitting as a leisure activity or in the 19th century women knitting for so-called pin money but actually nowadays knitwear is um, a, a really major element of the Scottish economy and so we're trying to kind of bridge the gap between that stereotypical image of knitwear and the kind of very modern place that it has in the Scottish economy. So that rather neatly brings me on to my next question. Worldwide, there are many countries with their own place in knit history and with their own knitting cultures and traditions. But I wondered what it was that drew you to Scotland in particular for the Fleece to Fashion Project. There's lots of sheep here. (laughs) No, I mean, why Scotland? Well, I think partly it's a matter of scale, right? I mean, if we, to compare, to carry out a kind of Europe-wide project would have been completely beyond us. There is so much going on within the boundaries of Scotland that, that there is enough to play with, if you like. But there is also some really specific things about Scotland. In part, it's about the landscape, it's about the farming, it's about the history, and it's about the heritage, if you like, of knitwear production in Scotland, which is played on by all the big successful knitwear companies. So there is something about the Scottish brand that really informs the ways in which people think about and market in particular, but also buy knitwear that is produced in Scotland, or let's say knitwear that has the Made in Scotland (laughs) um, label on it. There are also some very specific knitting styles or traditions in Scotland that most Scottish people would would probably recognise And so we wanted to pick up on that as well and delve into some of those kind of traditional ways of making in Scotland that also link into the landscape, the sheep and sort of dying traditions and all all of that. I realise in asking this next question that this is perhaps something that we could talk about for the entirety of a podcast episode. But I was wondering 
if you could maybe tell us a bit more about the knitting techniques and textiles that are particularly associated with or unique to Scotland. Are there any that our listeners might be familiar with or perhaps there are some that aren't as well known that you'd be able to tell us about? So just to reel them off, I mean, there's there's Fair Isle that most people know about that originates in Fair Isle, the islands, but also spread, you know, to Shetland more generally and then across the country. But there's also Shetland lace knitting, which is a, a hand knitted lace, which Rosalind could talk about. There's also the Gansey tradition, which we haven't really thought about very much because there's lots of research on Gansey's which is a fisherman's smock style jumper um, knitted in coastal communities, but that's not specific to Scotland. There's Sanka knitwear. Sanka is near Dumfries. In there, they produce traditionally gloves in particular, little black and white squares, quite intricate designs. There are also knitting traditions that are a bit more modern. I think Lynn would like to talk perhaps about cashmere production and the twin set production in Scotland. Yeah, as Lynn says, people usually do focus on what Lynn's been speaking about, these very specific like colour work or pattern base for good reason. You know, these are heritage skills. They're, they're very desirable. There's a lot of discussion as who invented the twin set. Was it Chanel? But basically, the Scottish border firms, especially during the sort of post-war period, became major manufacturers of what we recognise as classically styled knitwear. So that's the twin set, like a round neck jumper with a matching cardigan. And this really held the sort of attention of a large part of the world because it became a really important export. And they were dressing like Hollywood stars, as it were. So I, I was lucky enough to speak to someone who worked in the industry. You generate not his family, but other families, people he knew generations had worked in the industry. And they would go to the cinema. They would be able to pick out garments that had been made in the borders. Really quite a small community with this very concentrated number of manufacturers making high quality garments, usually often in cashmere, that were getting exported to the US and you know around Europe. So for a long time, that was a really important market for them. So it's stylistic as well. So it's actually quite a relatively simple garment, but still that division between classic styles and fashionable styling of knitwear. That's another sort of important element of knitwear story for Scotland. That's really cool. I didn't realise that we had that connection to the twin set here. Do you know if there was a reason why they chose to use cashmere? We think the more we're sort of looking at it is we think it's certainly colonialism. You know, they they were sending the British, you know, they were all off with India, they were to different parts of the Far East, it comes from Mongolia, China. So they cashmere as a like the pashmina is hugely influential in the 18th, 19th century, but it was an incredibly valuable fabric in a garment. But they were familiar with this beautiful, beautiful yarn and this handle. And Johnson's of Elgin were among the first he imported cashmere and started to spin it, but they were spinning it for woven textiles. But you find if you look at, we've been looking at catalogues for border firms and they're making underwear. They're using cashmere, vicuna, camel, alpaca, these very rare, beautiful yarns to get this beautiful handle and fit. And it just seems to be the sort of natural progression as outerwear becomes increasingly popular during the early 20th century and certainly into war period and then into the post-war period. Why would you wear underneath things? You know, it, you, they wore it because it was warm, but you're wearing it because of beautiful handle 
and it's highly skilled. This is what they took tie together. It's a very maybe simple shape, but it fits beautifully. And it's made of this very, very fine yarn. And that really how Johnson's of Elgin and most of the Borders firms eventually were sort of building their businesses. So a huge part of what they did. They also knitted in lambs wool and jet They would combine silk and cashmere or silk and moon. So they blend, they blend yarns as well. When they were blending the yarn, did they blend in any of the Scottish breeds at all? What we're just sort of discovering is sort of the borders industry was built on knitting cashmere, and that's being brought from halfway across the world, basically. Cashmere is very difficult to get hold of, and it can be incredibly expensive. But we have got evidence of different yarns or sheep breeds in Scotland that were of use, some of it in different ways. Probably the most significant, I think, would be the Shetland yarn. So Ros probably say a bit more about that quality of it and how they were using that. Shetland yarn is a bit of a problem because in the 19th century when Shetlanders were using Shetland yarn and its qualities were highly sought after, a lot of the the wool would leave the islands and not come back and be used around the UK. And a lot of the, the Shetland knitters were dependent upon the wool from the Shetland sheep to create them knitted garments because that was part of the selling point. It got to a point probably in the the last quarter of the 19th century where attaching the word Shetland in front of a sheep gave it a, a marketing power and suddenly there were there was Shetland wool from Leicester, Shetland wool from Nottingham, Shetland wool from Australia. It was coming from everywhere. Although there were attempts to make it them not be allowed to call them Shetland sheep. There were slight differences in the law whereby if a sheep had gone to England and five generations later its, its lambs had grown up and were producing wool, regardless of any crossbreeding in between, they could start using the word Shetland. So it was very difficult to get around to the point where in Shetland, they started saying real Shetland wool so that people would know the difference. But then everybody jumped onto that bandwagon too. So when you see Shetland wool in some of the, the catalogues throughout the, the latter half of the, the 19th and, and through the 20th century, it's really difficult to know how much of that is actually Shetland. And if any of it is the breed that they favour so much in Shetland. Because, now I'm not going to lie, I don't know the names of breeds. We would need Carol Christensen here, who's a curator up in Shetland, to tell us the exact difference between the breeds. But there are two, and one of them is highly prized, and one of them is just people love it. The highly prized one, who knows how much of that actually is part of the Shetland yarn industry. It's difficult to say, but just adding the name, as I said, made it a product, a desirable product that people wanted to buy. People still want to buy. That's crazy, first of all. I don't know if you'll know this, but in terms of the Shetland yarn available now and used now, is that the genuine thing or is that still suffering from other areas taking it and labelling it as that? It won't all come from Shetland because, as you know, Shetland's a really small place and although there's a lot of sheep there, there's not a lot of, there's not enough sheep to produce the wool for all the Shetland yarn that could be produced. I would say that the best of the Shetland wool is probably being processed in Shetland now. So if you're buying from Jameson's or Jameson and Smith's, then you're probably getting the best of the Shetland wool. Out with 
the islands. There's probably still a degree of crossbreeding within them, although I do believe that there are areas like in the United States where they're purchasing Shetland sheep to breed them. But one of the things that was always made, I don't know how true this is, but I believe part of it is true, is that the the wool from a Shetland sheep was in a particular style because of the landscape that they were in, because of what they were feeding on. So taking them out of their natural landscape might not produce the same quality of yarn, but a lot of that's yet to be seen. There's also... A lot of the lamb's wool was coming out, certainly as it became more popular for knitted outerwear, it was coming out of Australia because Australia was very quick to set up breeding programmes to kind of guarantee the, the consistency of quality. So again, and the amount of yarn that was needed, there simply just aren't enough sheep in Scotland. And today we've got a very strange, well, I think it's quite a strange source in that a lot of people started to breed alpaca for various reasons. And there's a small mill in the borders. The border mill was set up specifically because they had alpaca. They had two. They sometimes just have a pair. Sometimes they have a few more. And there was nowhere they could process it. So they set up initially to spin process alpaca yarn. And they're not breeding them. When I was talking to them, it's not necessarily breeding them for the fleece, which was kind of the obvious thing to do. But it's not. It's about the whole, it's an animal. They have fair and longing to go to one. They have actual sort of a pack of fairs where you can go and see them and they win prizes. But that's, another source it's not been bred they're not bred on a commercial scale I mean there's probably hundreds of alpaca rather than thousands but it's a kind of interesting diversion in sort of modern day Scotland I genuinely wouldn't have associated alpacas with Scotland and you're saying the mill's just down in the borders yeah they're lovely there's lovely people with such skill but they make the most beautiful yarn because mostly what they do is they process on behalf of and they, they don't just do alpaca because they found there's a whole lot of people who had small herds of as you were saying, Scottish sheep, they have different breeds and it's from all over Scotland, it's mainly in the UK. But they also create their own yarns and they can experiment because it allows them to show their customers what can be done. Because a lot of these people aren't, that's not what they're doing, they're not commercial yarn makers. What they do is they want the yarn and they can name the alpaca. So it's some of them have small herds and you can go walking you know, with alpaca. So then you can come back and you can buy something that's been knitted from a yarn from that particular animal. And all, But also they blend a lot, so they'll they blend alpaca with silk and they just get the most beautiful colours and beautiful beautiful handles so they're a fascinating very successful little company in Scotland. Well I absolutely love the sound of that and I'm definitely going to check out the border mill and their alpaca yarns in my personal time. However, whilst we're still on the topic of Scotland and the industry, are there any other ways in which the landscape or region might have impacted things further? So not just thinking about the techniques, but also the pattern design and perhaps the styles as well? I think it can do, but this is going to be with the huge caveat of like, it all depends, doesn't it? But I think we can probably all think of specific examples that can be associated with certain regions and one of the most exciting things that I think we found about this project is actually what was going on in Glasgow as a different context to what was going on in the borders. So Glasgow was going, you've got the borders, which as Lynn was talking about was Kashmir, fine, the fine end of the finer end of the range. And in Glasgow, we've been digging into this firm called Tumax, and they were producing knitted machine knitted goods from like the 1920s to around the 1980s and their style I would say is completely different in many ways to what we see from the borders examples we've got this fabulous dress which we think is dated from 1965 so the height of mod fashion and it's a short tunic style dress short sleeves bright blue 
with basically a racer stripe knitted down the front. It's still in perfect condition and looks like it's never been worn when we know it has been worn. And that's because it's made from all on. So it's acrylic fabric rather than natural. So it's taken us in a completely different direction to all this lovely sort of Scottish landscape, Scottish highlands and, you know, natural fibres and all that kind of thing. And it's perhaps something that isn't necessarily thought about when you think about Scottish knitting. So I would say that's the antithesis to all the other stuff that we've been looking at. And that seems to be very Glasgow specific. It draws on all the labour that's available in Glasgow, the space in Glasgow to have these large factories, transport networks, getting all of the goods in and shipping them out again. So yeah, that, that would be my example that I was going to come up with, but I think the others could probably have some, some different ones. I just think there are lots of different reasons why Knitwear production is situated in particular places and why particular mm, styles and techniques, you know, are practised in those places. So it's not consistent across the country. So the Glasgow example actually is a really interesting one, but it, it kind of makes you think, I suppose, predominantly about labour and about the availability of labour. I mean, of course, that's absolutely critical to any any production, and particularly volume production. Again, if you go back to the borders around Hoyk and, and those areas, I mean, the, the knitwear industry is there partly because of the natural environment, the softness of the water, the sheep, but it's there now, really, because of the labour and the skills that, that exist there. But they still struggle to get enough people who want to work for them, even though they're one of the most you know, successful businesses in the country. We've got lots of evidence from the post-war decades when the knitwear industry was actually doing quite well in Scotland. Up until the 70s, it was doing quite well before it suffered from global competition and deeper production being, being undertaken elsewhere, where companies were really struggling for labour and moving around the country, you know, and setting up factories in places where you think, well, that's a really odd place for a knitwear factory. But it's because they thought there were sufficient women in the community there to staff a knitwear factory. So I think in the in the modern period, particularly post-war, that's kind of why you find knitwear production in particular places. It's because there are people there to do the work. Just thinking about the people who were working in the knitwear industry, can you tell us a little bit more about them? Was it predominantly women who were engaged in working in the industry or was there a different gender divide there? This is a huge subject which is really difficult to cover in 20 sentences or less. But briefly, regarding a gender division of labour, it completely depends upon what kind of knitting we're speaking about. So hand knitting has always been associated with women and primarily women working from home. Now, whether that was for profit or for leisure or because they were knitting for their family as a, a method of clothing them rather than making money is primarily seen as a, a woman's role in the hand knitting sector. There are exceptions, though, where we know of men that knitted in the past and we know of men who and knitted for profit in the past. But to a degree, that still kind of remains the same. Although there are more men hand knitting, especially in small businesses now, it's still pretty much a woman's role. And unfortunately, in the past, it was seen kind of as an unskilled labour. And for that reason, it became undervalued, not just as a form of textile production, 
but undervalued in what people were paid. I'll give you a quick example, one that Lynn found, which is just a dream. A report from 1925 that showed quick analysis of hand knitters. It doesn't specify where, just Scotland, but hand knitters and machine knitters. Hand knitters producing coats, jackets and open-work shawls were paid less per hour than people knitting socks on machines. So the the value was placed on those that could operate machinery rather than those who were working with with their hands. When it comes to actual businesses like Peter Scott, there is a very clear division of labour, although, again, there are exceptions because there are instances of women from the 1910s who worked knitting frames, but it's uncommon and it's quite exciting when you find them. But primarily... It appeared that the men worked in machinery because they were big and strong and the machinery needed big and strong men. And women worked in the finishing processes like binding, sewing up, mending, those kind of jobs. To a degree, that still happens. There are more women work on the machines now, but the finishing processes are still very much female-focused. When you go into the factory floor, it's almost exclusively female working in the finishing processes. In the 1950s, so when times started to kind of change, where the automated machines came in, Lynn knows more about technology and machinery than I do, but when the automated machines got to the point where they were more easily used, the excuse that this was a man's job no longer held any weight. And you can see through the, the borders records that they started to actively seek out young women as apprentices to work on the frames. They don't always get them. And the primarily it's still boys who are coming in as these apprentices, but they make it clear that they're actively seeking young women to come in to do these roles. I think and I hope that they'll get the young women to come in and at least work in the factory because there was a labour shortage. Machine working, though, wasn't just confined to factories. People worked at home on knitting machines. Outworkers would work for either for themselves or for businesses. We have a couple of really good records from the 1950s from Shetland and from the north of Scotland in Wick, where women were working on knitting machines in their own homes. They had either been loaned them, hired out to them from the business or had actively gone out and purchased a machine so that they could have work and then they would produce their machine knitted garments. In some cases there's still a lot of hand hand finishing going on with these but these are primarily female roles too although we do have a lovely example in Shetland where the woman, where a woman knitted on the knitting machine hand-knitted the yokes of the fair isle, attached them and knitted all the sleeves on the machine. And then her husband, when he came home from work, sewed them all together for her and then stretched them and pressed them. So he did the final finishing processes for her so she could continue knitting and, and it would increase her income. But it's unclear exactly what the percentage of, currently, what the percentage of machine workers to finishers is but it would be interesting to see if that's kind of still the same or if it's a more even split that just as many women are working and operating the machines it's something that I just find absolutely well I have to be honest I find it quite funny is that operating machinery traditionally a man's job also includes operating the washing machines in the factories because these are machines now that could be down to the fact that uh, a washing machine full of, of wet knitwear is quite heavy but 
but this is a man's job rather than a woman's job in a factory. If you walk around Johnson's of Elgin today in Hoyk, in their knitwear factory, producing beautiful high-quality cashmere knitwear, the knitting machines are all computerised machines. So they're operated by a computer programme and they were all minded by men when Lynn and I walked around just a few weeks ago. And likewise, as Rosalind indicated there, the washing machines where the knitwear is is washed and turned into the beautiful soft cashmere that we know and love were operated by men. And so was the pressing as well. And then all the other work, which is the majority of it, really, the linking, that is, you know, attaching the sleeves to the body of a garment, mending, taking the bobbles off, you know, if there's any bobbles on anywhere, all of that kind of stuff is all done by women and often um, older women who've got skills still. So that gender division of labour still exists, but there's the, the original reasons for it no longer exist. It's about tradition and convention and what people expect to be able to do and, and so on. And I think the, the employers, we asked them, I think, or didn't we, Lynn? We asked them, why, why is this still the case? And they said, we just can't recruit. We try to recruit women for men's jobs and vice versa. And, you know, it's really difficult. You mentioned older women there, Lynn. Is is there a specific age range that was associated with working in the factories or things like that? And and I suppose before women began to combine being married with doing paid work, larger numbers of women working in factories would have been single or they would have been married but not with children. But, of course, that began to change sort of by the end of the 60s and married women and mothers were increasingly working in factories. So you do get an age range and of course you get women coming back into factories when they're they're older because they've got the skills. I mean, now there's difficulty in recruiting younger women from school to come in and train. So the, the bigger knitwear companies will have apprenticeship schemes to try and train them up but they assure us that it's really quite difficult to get people to come in and and one of the problems is around training is the fact that the textile training colleges like Harriet Watts say but not singling them out but they do teach knitwear but what they teach is computer-aided design and, and production on computerized machines so they don't teach all this other ancillary stuff which is so important for the sector so there's a kind of skills shortage in Scotland at the moment I don't know whether that's the case elsewhere. At the moment you're all working on a project involving Margaret Klein and her patterns so I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about that as well. That would be me. I Well, we all do stuff on the Margaret Venn project, but I kind of oversee it because I'm obsessed with Margaret. It came about after a research visit to the National Museums of Scotland. I don't know how many of the team knew about Margaret Klein. Before I came back from a trip to the National Museum, all excited to discover that Bernard Klein hadn't designed the knitwear, that it was his wife. It's very possible that everybody already knew this on the team and I just got overexcited. So we decided that we would look into this further. Margaret had no textile training. She was a civil servant. She married Bernard Klein, the renowned artist, stylist, yarn and textile designer. And using the yarns that he produced, started to create knitting patterns in the 1960s so that people at home could knit their own jumpers, quite often a little twin set style thing, to coordinate with the fabrics that he was creating. By the 1980s, 
this had turned into a cottage industry where they weren't selling the patterns, they were selling ready-to-wear garments. And the ready-to-wear garments were designed by Margaret, produced by hundreds or an army of home workers around Scotland and then sold through various shops using like little catalogues, almost like a style guide where they could see a tiny little picture of what something looked like and order it. When we discovered that her outwork of patterns were held in the National Museum, but they didn't have any correlation with any garments that were known, we decided that the Margaret Klein, Knit a Margaret Klein pattern project would start. It launched in February, the end of February this year. And I would just like to say at this point, a huge thanks to the Klein family who very graciously gave us permissions to use the patterns because they're all under copyright. The intellectual property still belongs to the family and they kindly gave us permission to use the patterns for our volunteer knitters. A lot of Margaret's ready-to-wear garments are are quite simple. They're boxy in style. They're produced with um, open stitches. They they follow a, a kind of similar style with some differences and in many cases it's the yarn that makes a difference. So... We chose patterns that used words that might give some idea of how to match up a pattern with a garment, what we find. So words like windows, lozenges, Spanish lace, that kind of thing. So we pulled out those patterns and we created them for the volunteers. When we put out a call for the volunteer research knitters, we had an an astounding response. Over 200 knitters volunteered to take part. They come from all over the UK and the US. We asked them to knit a sample. We asked them to knit a six-inch sample. And if they were inclined, they could knit a little bit further. If it had a band in it, add the band or a little bit of the rib. If they were interested and inclined to knit a garment, to let us know. We do have garments that were knitted astoundingly. It's it's just marvellous. And also uh, partial garments where people didn't have the time to knit a whole garment for us, but they would knit the front or the back or a sleeve so that we can see partially what the garment would look like. And these are amazing. You can just play with them for hours, but they're so good. As well as the sample, we asked them to fill in a a feedback sheet for us. And it's quite detailed. There's a lot of questions on it. I was a bit concerned that maybe we were asking too much of people, but the, the level of detail that people provide with their answers has been fabulous. I mean, for example, we asked them to tell us where they knit the garment, what they were doing when they knitted the garment, how long it took them to knit the garment or the sample, and how many hours it took. And from that, we can start to calculate what it would have been like for a home knitter. Was it possible to watch the TV or not? Did you have to sit in silence and knit? How long did it take? We can use a six-inch square to start to calculate what a whole garment, how long a whole garment might have taken to knit. They've really, really gone above and beyond the call for the information that they've provided us. And we're still receiving samples. And once they're all in, we will be able to complete the analysis. I mean, it's quite exciting. We can already match up a couple of the patterns with known garments, but we really look forward to, to sharing the final analysis, and especially with our, our volunteer research knitters who deserve a lot of the credit for what's happened. I can't imagine what it's like having so many swatches and samples and things and getting to feel it. I suppose you're kind of touching history at that point, really, in a way, aren't you? And that will just be really exciting. It, it's very yeah. exciting. Every time something arrives in the post, it's mm-hmm. very exciting. Or something arrives in the internal mail. 
I can imagine what it must have been like for the knitters that are volunteering as well and getting to get involved, contributing to the research. It must be really exciting. It's very strange because we ask for, like, just any other comments that they have to make. And a lot of research knitters say that it felt really good to be part of a research project, to be knitting for something that would that would be an outcome more than just a bit of knitting. It would tell a story and they liked the idea of being part of the story. Obviously, you're focusing on Margaret at the moment, but I wonder if there are any other figures or even techniques or textiles that you want to explore next or in the future? I realise that's perhaps quite a vast question. <laughs> it's because, it, it, I mean, doing a kind of knowledge exchange project like that is, is a huge investment of time, really. So I think we, we won't be replicating that. I mean, we do have partners or collaborators on the project. One of them is a border mill because we're interested in spinning capacity in, in Scotland, so Lynn's been interviewing the border mill people to to understand a bit better just the kind of capacity of, that Scotland has or doesn't have actually to to spin any kind of yarn. We also have a partnership with Shetland Museum and Archives um, because they have really probably the best collection of knitted items in the country, and with in the past organised quite a lot of activities with them. And we also have a partnership with, with the designer maker, Di Gilpin, who has her own design and hand knitting studio in Fife. And she works extensively with high fashion companies. And so she can provide a really good insight into, I suppose, what you'd call almost the couture hand knitting industry, which is really something else altogether. So we've got a number of different partnerships and we're doing different things with them in order to try and understand, I suppose, the the kind of state of the sector at lots of different levels at the moment. Yeah, the, the sort of Scottish knitting industry, if you like, now is actually a patchwork of sort of small makers, designers, yarn producers. So there's a lot of them and they're all doing quite exciting things. It's very different from the idea of large scale factories with volume production. Um, Johnson of Elgin is by far the largest knitwear manufacturer in Scotland. So it's a very different complexion to the industry now from when it was earlier. But that's what we're finding is interesting, this comparison of periods, scales of production and that regional production, you know, the hand, the machine, where people are, that's what's making it such an interesting project. Are there any figures from the 21st century of roundabout now, I suppose, that you think are contributing and moving things forward in the industry? It's such a kind of vibrant sector, and there are lots of different elements to it. So there are lots of small and medium entrepreneurs who already have a name out there, and the ways in which they promote themselves and their work is obviously very different to the ways in which people were able to do that in the past. I think that's really quite striking. So, for example, if you look at Shetland, you know, in the past, people have always designed their own knitwear as well as knitted, you know, standard stuff for the Shetland knitwear companies. But they didn't have the internet to to advertise their their wares. So they they would tend to design items for themselves or their friends. And then maybe they would also do designs for department stores or, you know, agents who who would come around. Well, now you can put it on the internet and they will get 
lots and lots of orders. And some of those orders will be knitted up by hand. Some of them will be knitted in a factory. Um, it's a, it, just the, the nature of the industry has changed massively. I, I suppose one of the things is it's very difficult to know what success looks like. It's very difficult to get a handle on income. It's very difficult to get a handle on wages. No one will talk about wages, um, particularly for, for home knitters who are being contracted to work by some of the larger companies. So although it's, it's quite a high profile sector, there's still quite a lot that we don't really know about it, particularly from the perspective of now compared with in the past. I think it's like the nature of knitwear as an industry and as a product, it is not going anywhere. People are going to be wearing knitted garments, knitted fabrics. <laughs> it's unlikely to fade. So I think it's really just Scotland is changing how it's contributing to that market. And they're, most of these, a lot of them are young entrepreneurs. They are thinking of really thoughtful ways of doing that. Sustainability is becoming a hugely important factor. And the, the circular economy, this idea of not buying lots of different things, slow fashion, all of these things are being considered by people that, especially in the network industry in, these, in this small scale, that is very important to them. I mean, it's probably still the case that the vast bulk of knitwear that's worn by people, let's say, in Scotland is manufactured overseas, you know, even if it's pure wool, but a lot of it isn't pure wool. And the vast majority of really high-end knitwear that's produced in Scotland is exported. Are there any highlights or any standout elements from Fleece to Fashion so far? Well, the yarn was amazing. So we produced University of Glasgow knitting yarn from the vet school sheep. In fact, we did it twice because the vet school keeps a lot of sheep on its farm and they, they you know, have to have the sheep sheared and they were getting no money for their for the wool, which was just sitting in big sacks in the shed. So we volunteered to take some of them and send it away for processing. So that was really good and we've still got a lot of it. And I think you can still get it through the university shop. And we will be selling it at our conference, which is happening in September, the 8th and 9th of September at the university. So the wool was really exciting. And despite the fact that the sheep are pretty standard Scotch mule cross sheep, and their wool would normally be used for mattresses or carpets, in fact, it produced a very nice sort of double knit worsted knitting yarn. The next big exciting thing that we're really looking forward to is the launch of our University of Glasgow knitting pattern book, which we hope to be launching before too long. So I won't say any more about that. Watch this space. And we've done quite a lot of things despite the pandemic. We have had quite a lot of events online. The timing of this project coincided. We I think we worked about six months before the pandemic put us into lockdown. And so for two years, we were doing exactly this, having the Zoom meetings. And so that's actually one of the highlights for me was being able to talk to these amazing people on a regular basis about something that was fun and interesting and learning so much about the different aspects of this industry that would never even have crossed my mind normally. Another highlight would be we finally got to go out somewhere to meet people as, as a group as a team some of us managed to make it out to Gerlock and we gave an evening of events there and met some knitters from the region we looked into the local history of knitting in that region you can't underestimate the usefulness of connecting place and product and understanding how it all fits together and making those connections that we talked about at the beginning between landscape and people and the product and looking at how this all impacted this tiny village on the west coast of Scotland and looking at the connections that you can make elsewhere and it was just wonderful to be out of 
our own flats and houses and be somewhere different and looking at a different view and thinking about all these things that we've been discussing online for two years and being able to put it more into practice it was fantastic and I think as Sally says it's, it's the get now it's great you know Ros and I will not lie we love to be in an archive or a library and especially visiting sites of production like the Border Mill and Johnson of Elgin, who very kindly let us visit their factory, the knitting factory in Hoyt. And then I was up recently to look at the spinning of cashmere up in Elgin. But it's talking to people about their skills, the value of the tacit knowledge and the experience. Because when I was in the borders, talking to the staff at the Border Mill, and they would describe things. They gave me a little task to do just so I was kind of occupied. But they were amazed at like, how can you not not to do that because they forget that there's an awful lot of information they have in their fingers that they've acquired. But even if you describe somebody, like just do that, that's not enough. And by talking to them and asking them questions, they began to recognize the value of what it is that they did, the experience that they have, which was great because again, and we were talking to someone in Elgin and her part of her job is to the sort of learning and development and she was doing this she was there kind of creating competency framework and she says going and standing next to someone saying right what is it you do and why do you do it this way and how do you describe it again they kind of think oh actually I do know this is quite an important thing and it creates these great connections so it was brilliant just seeing the actual use you know it's great when you see a garment or you see a catalogue about a, a piece of technology but when you see the two sort of coming together and exactly how do you get from a ball of wool to you know a jumper and how many hands it passes through for me it's the Margaret Klein project because I just love working with the volunteer researchers I love effort and the time and the energy and the knitting stash that they supply for us all free in an effort to extend our research I love dealing with them generally and they do provide information that we would probably never get anywhere else but I, what I especially like is the way they phrase things because they make you look at things in a different way I looked at the pattern so many times and I've got it in my head how I think it is not necessarily knitted but how I think the process is and how things are and then and then they say something completely different which makes me reevaluate how I've approached the pattern in the first place I'll give you a little example but nothing to do with actual pattern but a little example that one of them put in their feedback well, there's a pattern that was typed up it has a, 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 draw, a drawing on the front with an illustration with the sizings and then the pattern starts and the pattern's typed but at some point Margaret has decided to slightly change the sizings of the pattern and rather than go through the process of retyping the whole thing she just marks it in red pen all her changes and when I sent it to the volunteer and I said the red pen you know you don't have to worry too much about the red pen markings because it's just about sizing just and when they replied, they said they loved the red pen markings. It was like a musical score on a knitting pattern. And I just thought, what a marvellous expression. Just how someone could see something so different. I saw complications and they saw a musical score attached to a knitting pattern, which I just thought was lovely. That's such a lovely way to describe it. I've heard different people refer to knitting patterns in different ways, but I think that's just a really beautiful way to look at them. That's amazing. That kind of brings me on to another question, actually. This is a bit of a two-parter, but first of all, were all of you already 
knitters or involved in textile pursuits before the project? So I was. I feel like I should be part of a group that ends with the word anonymous, non-knitter anonymous. I started my PhD as a non-knitter. I finished my PhD as a non-knitter. I've now worked on a couple of knitting projects and really embarrassed to admit that I'm still a non-knitter. I usually say I can't knit, but one of my family, who knits beautifully, said to me, you can knit, you choose not to knit. But to be honest, I can't knit because she's taught me. And then as soon as I get home, I forget how you do it. I just can't do it. And I am embarrassed. But I admit to it, I don't try and pretend otherwise. I originally trained as a woven textile designer and then I worked in theatre making costumes. So I I have a background in textile, textile production, and that's what always interests me was how are these things made and who made them historically, which is what brought me to sort of researching. But I cannot lie, I, I don't know. I was very briefly taught to do a little thing when my grandmother when I was young, but it never stayed with me. I just split stitches. So whatever I start with ends up bigger when I get to the end. And all this project has done is increase my respect for people who can understand knitting patterns. I appreciate knitting and I wear it. I think I'm somewhere in between Ros and Lynn and Lynn Abrams and I started to learn in lockdown. I was one of those classic, ooh, how can I <laughs> how can I entertain myself in lockdown and relax a bit more? And I do enjoy it, but I'm no good at it. And I need very basic things to follow I don't like counting I don't like following knitting patterns and I find it relaxing when you can just go from one end to the other turn around and go back and I really enjoy that kind of thing and I'm Lynn gave me a pattern for Christmas which is a hat and I'm still working my way up to it I I keep looking at it thinking I should try this but I haven't quite dared to yet so definitely not an accomplished litter but like Lynn Gardner I can appreciate the skill more having tried it myself a little bit. Like Lynn Gardner, I also appreciate knitting. I've worked with it in front of my eyes so many times. And from that perspective, I would say, Sally, your knitting's very neat. You know, you may say, (laughs) okay, you might not be knitting Shetland lace, but that's an acquired skill that takes many years to master. When you've shown us and meeting your knitting, it always looks neat and, and the tension looks good. I mean, I might not knit, but I do know what these things are. It always looks, I think, it looks like a very nice piece of knitting. I think you should be very proud of what you purchase. Very kind of you to say, Rosalind. I've just been very selective about the bits that I show you. <laughs> I was most impressed when you knitted one sock. You're like, that's enough. <laughs> I've turned the corner. I've done, I've done all of the bits necessary, but that's... <laughs> Socks were hard. That was, that was a struggle. <laughs> that was a struggle, that one. That was a dark time in lockdown. <laughs> But yes, we're all agreed. We think Sally's a much better knitter than she's saying she This is. makes it sound like I was fishing for compliments. I really wasn't. <laughs> no, but yeah. And Lynn Abrams' knitting is absolutely gorgeous. She's making a face, but it's true. Second part of that question then is, has being on Fleece to Fashion changed how you look at knitting and knitted textiles? I mean, obviously for some of you, it hasn't necessarily changed your relationship with knitting personally, but has it had any other impact? I'm going to start with this one because... It has had an impact, although I never did any fibercraft projects on the go before or now. But I do have a, a habit of buying yarn whenever I go to visit someone to speak to them about things. I can't leave without purchasing things that then become 
beautiful but quite expensive ornaments. There are people in the universities who I should just give them my beautiful but quite expensive ornaments. I won't name names. So in that way, it has kind of changed me because I now purchase things, but then I can't do anything with them. It's research. It's all research, you see. So we go to knitting yarn shops and things and you'd have to buy something for research purposes. And clothes off eBay, I'm afraid, too, Sally. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've single-handedly dri- driven up the prices of any two max garments <laughs> for sale in Britain. But I'm not ashamed of that. I'm quite proud of that. But I think in terms of anything that, if anything, this project has, like I say, it's made me appreciate the skill going to stuff. And while I may not go and buy a jumper, I still wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done this before the project. Like, you know, hand-knitted jumpers that cost hundreds of pounds, I would never have given a second look at because, you know, I'm not going to spend that much money on a jumper. I wish I could. But now I will look at it and appreciate why it costs that much money when knowing about all the processes that go into making that garment. And it's not just somebody sitting with a pair of needles and bringing it together. There's so much work involved in it. So it's really made me appreciate that and looking at high street stuff and just seeing how it's put together and thinking about the processes involved in the machines and that kind of thing. So, I mean, whether that's going to be a lifelong thing, it's definitely affected the way I look at knitted garments if I'm buying something, that's for sure. I was more interested in wearing knitwear, I'll be honest, (laughs) than actually knitting it. For me, it was was how it's it's constructed. I, I didn't know much about how you actually knit I know that, I, well, I know how you knit with knitting needles, but how you can do it with machines and the sophistication of the machines and how the machines and the hand work together, that was very intriguing. So that's really, as Sally says, when you're looking at how things are made, I was very lucky to get access to sort of a lot of knitted garments in Hoyt Museum. And they were very kind and they said, well, you know, you can look at, and so you got that chance to look at them in, in detail and go through different manufacturers of different types of garments and some of the detailing, the way they had done some things, you really got an appreciation. So I think it's very interesting how the things are constructed as well as just what it would look like if you were wearing it. Whereas I look at clothes, I always think of how is it made more than, well, what will it look like if you have it on? Whereas knitwear, I suppose it was the reverse. I was always, I wore knitwear, but now I'm thinking, how did they make that? What machine, how, how was that put together? You've alluded to the conference and the pattern book, which I'm very excited about. What else can we expect from Police to Fashion? Well, at the end of the project, it's going to be a big book in classic academic fashion. You know, we need to write a book. So there will be a definitive history of knitting in Scotland, encompassing all the things we've just talked about. So that's the kind of big outcome of the project end. There'll be some more public engagement events We're going down to Hoyk in September to really do some work with the museums and collections there and try and encourage some some workers from the Hoyk industry to come and talk to us. So we're constantly out and about, whether it's online or in person, speaking about the project and trying to engage with people. It has to be said, a lot of people out there know, know a lot more than we do because they've worked in the industry for a long time or they've knitted for a long time and they've got fantastic skills. So yeah, it's 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 great to kind of be working on a project that's got so, so much kind of public recognition actually and so much so much interest. A huge thank you to Lynn, Sally, Roz and Lynn for joining us on the podcast today. It was amazing getting to learn more about the Fleece Fashion Project and getting to uncover just 
a fraction of Scotland's rich and varied knitted textile history. If you'd like to know more about the Fleece of Fashion project, you can visit their website at www.fleecetofashion.gla.ac.uk. On the website, you'll find links to the project's blog, as well as the resources they've created, including their recently launched knit map. You can also keep up to date with the project by following them on Twitter and Instagram at U of G Knitting. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts or by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Sia Jackson. Music is Notion by Coma Media. See you next time.